Hello and welcome to Cinemaker's Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 30, The Nick, season 2 from 2015. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I've told Mike halfway through the season, I'm not feeling it. I'm not into this show. I think it lost its focus. I think it's too sprawling. And then something happened and the back half of the season won me back over. I don't know that this is necessarily as good as season one. But I think by the end where we get to, it gets back to that machine that I think we all loved the first time around. Yeah, and and I think I was telling you that I was sort of feeling the same way until I got to the end and I wanted more. Knowing that the show's not going to come back, I feel like I've got the rug pulled out from under me or something, but... I'm a little bummed that Thack won't come back again, that this is the last we're going to see of these characters. But just really quickly, that was always the plan, though. I don't know if everybody was going to leave, but like I said last time, the plan from Cinemax and Soderbergh and Clive Owen was to do two seasons, and then if they renewed it, they were going to do a new director, a new star, everything. So even if the show was still on TV, Thackeray wouldn't be there. This was the end of his story no matter what. Like, this was not a written into the end as, like, a cliffhanger. This was the end. Even if season four was on now or whatever, it would not be the show that we know. It'd still probably be on the hospital. Maybe the new hospital would be built. Maybe it would be Algie's show. Who knows? Clive Owen only signed up for two years. He wasn't going to do more than that. Soderbergh did an interview after the show was canceled and uh, laid out his plan for season three, and it involved moving the show to 1947 and completely different place. As you said, different director, different star, like a whole different kind of thing, kind of like the way that they're doing Girlfriend Experience, where it shifts so sort of completely, at least at the beginning. In this case, two seasons set, and they would just keep doing two seasons at a time in sort of different locations. It's kind of a fascinating idea. I had the experience at the, I I guess, kind of a different experience of this season than you guys. I felt a little bit like you did at the very, very beginning. I thought, oh, I was all sort of primed to come back. Felt like it didn't quite have its feet under it. But then really soon after that, I was completely plugged into this. I think... I think in retrospect, this is a, even better than the first season. And I think my feeling at the end was the same thing, Mike, that you described, feeling like so disappointed. Like I wanted more. I wanted so much more. But also it was kind of perfect. Like these two seasons together are, are in my mind kind of a perfect little capsule of, of television. And I don't know that I would change any of it. And I've got all kinds of reasons for all that going along. But I did want more and simultaneously didn't want there to be any more. That's interesting that they were going to sort of shift it to be an anthology at this point in season three instead of like, I could, that would have been cool at season two even to have just picked up like in a completely different hospital or something like that. I don't know. I did just get too attached to these people. Like now that you say it though, like, cause I had no foreknowledge that aside from what you said, like in the last episode, like it didn't really stick, I guess that this was only what they signed up for. But now having heard that again, like I can totally see it. Like it, it does feel conclusive. It does have sort of that exclamation mark at the end. There is sort of a closure to a lot of it. So I don't know. I just think it would have been a little weird at that point as an anthology, but you know, I still would have watched it. It's cool. I just really like these characters. And now I really like a lot of these actors that I wasn't familiar with before either. So I look forward to watching them in other stuff now that they've disbanded this. I kind of like this idea of the two seasons. Like, as we're recording this now, which still might be on, although I think it might be toward the end or just have ended, on Stars, there's a new TV show called Counterpart, which stars J.K. Simmons, and he actually plays two roles. I've seen the first two episodes, I think. I think I'm one behind, and it's really good. And that was created to be at least for now, they say, we're going to do two seasons. And so I like this idea of, you know, the British TV model of like, we're going to do six, we're going to tell a story, we're going to end. And then, you know, if our team has an idea, we'll come back. 
I like this idea of being like, we're going to give you a little bit more rope than that. You have 20 hours or whatever you need to tell the story. Tell your story. Right, right. And then if you want to keep the world alive, if you want to keep the story alive, if you want to keep the characters alive, we can revisit that at the end of the season two. But I like this idea. I mean, anthology shows are sort of all the rage on TV right now. I mean, this might have predated True Detective or been around the same time as True Detective, but like American Horror Story was before this. And there's certain seasons where I'd be like, oh, I'd be down for a second year of this. And there's other ones where I'm like, oh, I have, no, I have no interest in that. Like, I think this works well. I don't know if you have a third season, because I guess Thackeray is probably dead. And that was actually, I don't know if you guys remember, but I accidentally read while reading up for the last episode. I read that Thackeray dies. Oh, yeah. And so the whole season, I was like, how is he going to die? And this is actually, you know, I was I was just listening to, Tobin, your episode of Real Bad about Swim Fan. At the end, you talk about spoilers. Right. And you're talking about how sometimes knowing what happens at the end can make it a better experience. Mm-hmm. And so this whole season, I'm watching, like, how is he going to die? And I think maybe he's going to overdose. And then Abigail dies. I'm like, maybe he's going to kill himself. I did not see coming that he's going to perform <laughs> surgery on himself and then accidentally nick an artery and bleed out on the table. And so, like, the fact that I knew he died didn't actually make it worse. Because I knew there was no more. I knew there was going to be no more with him. I was as surprised as I would have been if I didn't know that at how he died. Yeah, and a cool thing is that, as with so much of this show, that's based on a real incident, a famous doctor who needed his appendix taken out, which, you know, was not an uncommon surgery at the time, and decided he was going to do it himself for a lot of the same reasons that Thack does this, and, the, and died in the theater in front of all the witnesses. And so the more you read about or watch the little behind the scenes of or the commentaries on this show, almost none of the sort of medical stuff in particular, and in a lot of the actual incidents of sort of medical adventurism, all of those, or a lot of those come from real life, including this last one. I had the same kind of thing I kind of knew. I remembered, I tried to avoid the press about this show when it came out because I knew I wanted to watch it and I just couldn't at the time. But I did hear something about, you know, you catch a headline that's, that would say, you know, shocking ending of end of the Nick and not re- whatever. So I, I had a suspicion that he died. And you can kind of tell, like, I feel like he wants to die. As the show goes like in the, into those last two or three episodes, but I didn't know. I mean, it's oh my god to, to see it actually sort of happen. I just it was like I, like they went out with a bang, you know. Yeah, like all throughout the show, I was really accustomed to the gore and the surgery, and it's really way toned down this season two as well. I feel in general. When they got to that, like, I just, you know, was watching it in amazement with my mouth, like, wide open. Like, I didn't want to miss a frame of what I was seeing because, like, I just kind of couldn't really wrap my mind around it that it was actually happening and he was doing it and this is how it was going to end. Like, I knew this was one of the last scenes in the show. I didn't know that he would go out like this. You know, it's funny, like, you do sort of get, there's a looming dread over the entire season, not just with his character, but with, like, most of the characters. Like, they all end up in pretty dark places. Like everything is kind of stripped away from everybody this season in a lot of ways. And that whole thing just feels so abrupt. And I loved it. You know, it's like it's not out of the realm of something that has been building. You know, I mean, it's like his research and his hubris, like all coming to this crescendo all at once and everything. And it it, it was just amazing. Like I really felt the impact of that. When Birdie comes in with this shot of adrenaline to bring him back to life, I felt the shot. What great filmmaking that as Bertie runs down to get the adrenaline and it's like it's all been set up to pay off at this moment, like for the Pulp Fiction moment to jab it in his heart and wake him back up. And you could see a million other shows like and this is what's great about 
Joey, as, as you were saying about the idea of giving two writers and a director, you know, 20 hours to do a show and knowing they're coming to this point and playing with us, given our expectations about TV shows that in 9.5 out of 10 TV shows at the season finale, there's a, a thing where the, he might die and then he gets jabbed with this, you know, with the adrenaline pen and then we cut to black and you wait all year waiting to see if he is alive or not, right? And that they're totally going to play with that right up until that moment and then there's this beautiful cut as he stabs him in the heart with this syringe and it's all over and it's just it's so in line with the show and feels so organic to the show and it, and as you say Mike in sort of retrospect you can see how it's all been leading to this moment but it still feels shocking it felt shocking to me, even though I sort of knew some of it as it was happening. I just I can't say enough about the way that they complete the arc of the show. I, I just am amazed. It would almost be like at the end of The Sopranos, and spoiler for the end of The Sopranos, but I feel like even if you didn't watch, you know how it ends. If, you know, they have the don't stop leaving, they say don't stop, cut to black. Then we come back and we see like Meadow and AJ doing stuff, but like Tony's nowhere to be seen. Like it'd be, it's like this weird sort of button, but like it works, I think. We see Algie taking over his talk therapy and we see Cornelia going, I guess, to Australia maybe. And like we see like these sort of finale moments for these guys and it's just these nice little buttons. I mean, there's no better ending for me than, I don't know the characters' names, but the nun and the ambulance driver getting engaged. Like I love them. Yeah, Cleary and Harriet, yeah. They are so good. You know, at this point in the season where I was sort of like not on board until they sort of focus on Thackeray, I think the problem I had, we can come back to this, but like, I think the problem I had was that there wasn't enough focus on Thackeray. Like, he's sort of not the most important character, but I think he grounds the show and like things revolve around him. And I don't think there was enough of that in the first half. And I just, I wasn't able to grasp on anything. But what I was getting through when I wasn't really fully on board were Cleary and Harriet and then Nurse Elkins. Her turn as like basically female Thackeray is amazing. Like, the three of them this year kept me from... I mean, I was always going to watch this. It wasn't like a K-Street situation where I bailed after an episode. <laughs> like, I was always going to get through this, but, like, even when I wasn't fully on board, I was into yeah. their stories. Like, I don't care about Cornelia investigating bodies coming in through Ellis Island and stuff. Like, I never connected with that. But, like, these characters, I was into. And even when the show wasn't what I wanted, it was cool to see, you know, Harriet trying to get through her ordeals or Nurse Elkins, you know, Lucy Elkins... I don't know, becoming a sociopath? Like, I don't know what she's doing, but it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue is they try not just to do too much in general, but too much with Thackeray. Like, he has, like, three or four things going on in his life this season. Like, he's going to find the cause of and then cure addiction, right? Like, he's going to get back with Abby. He's going to divide Siamese twins. Like, he's just got so much on his plate. I wish that was cut down to maybe one less, even though it does show him trying to overreach his bounds a lot. Uh, and then, on the other hand, I feel like the surrounding characters, supporting players, may not get enough time with their stuff because we're also following each of them on their own path. Like, I feel like Lucy is underserved. I really wanted more with her and her father. Uh, I mean, for what we get, I really like that stuff. I feel like we get too much Barrow. Barrow and his money troubles and all that kind oh of stuff. Like, God. I really get the point with that. Oh, Toby, you, lo you love him? I love that. I love what they've done with him in this season. Oh. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I hate Everett because he becomes a Nazi and like that <laughs> stuff just like bored me ultimately when he just ends up committing his wife again and getting together with her sister who looks exactly like her who might be her twin. 
I kind of like that, and I think we're jumping all over the place, but going to Barrow for a second, because I want to hear what Tobin's... Yeah, my defense of this, yeah. I think he's a great character, but I hate him. Like, I hate every time he's on screen. I don't want to see him... Like, every decision he can make, he makes the wrong one, and yet he gets away with it all. I mean, in the end, I guess his wife sort of has the comeuppance. And he'll have plague, right? I think he has plague. He has cancer. Oh, it's cancer. From the x-rays? Okay, that's what it was. Okay. He has too many x-rays, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those are melanomas on his hands, yeah. But, like, he gets into the club, you know, he gets this girl. And I also thought, like, the entire season, I thought his girl, who's the former whore, you know, Ping's whore, I thought she was up to something. And then by the end, I was like, oh, no, she's just a bad actress. No, like, I no, thought... she is up to something. She's... Is she? Oh, totally. She got him to sign over his, the apartment. All the money's going to go from the bank power accounts. Power of attorney. She's got power okay. of attorney. He, so, is, okay. he is fucked, man. Like she. So I guess I, I must have missed one scene because I was like, I wasn't sure. And I missed that. And I was like, oh, because the whole time she said it to be this manipulative. Why don't we get a nicer apartment? Oh, Why yeah. don't we do this? And so I'm glad that I missed that. Let me make a defense of Barrow. I think that one thing this show does so audaciously and smartly is it allows its characters to change. And maybe that's because it gets to be two seasons and then be done and like they know that. So within that, they allow these characters to actually move, to actually actually evolve and to be, sort of become different people. There's something that about Barrow who in the previous season and in the beginning of this season, whenever he was like commanding people around, it always felt to me like he was kind of playing at it. Like there was just a little hesitation. Like I'm not quite sure. I don't quite have the authority, but I'm going to act like it. And by mid-season of this season, as he's as we realize what he's doing to sort of finagle the money away from the building of the Nick and all that, there comes a moment where he is fully in command of his sort of I am now a big shot, even though he's not fully and he's going to get knocked back a couple more times. But I love that they were able to let him be that. He didn't always have to sort of be sniveling. And I think we need to see his evolution to getting there. I also think that what he demonstrates, too, is the idea that has sort of permeated the time and also since then that, like, you can be a self-made person in America. And I think he gives the lie to that because look at all the things he has to do to climb the social ladder. Like he has literally destroyed his life. This high wire act he's doing cannot last, let alone the fact he's riddled with cancer from all these x-rays. And that that is a thing that getting back to Soderbergh's interest in sort of critiques of capitalism, I think this fits beautifully into that. And I, I do see what you mean. I know, and I'm probably just too much in the tank for this show. I was ready to go wherever it wanted to take me. I never felt like, oh, I wish I wasn't with these people. Uh, and I think if you do feel that, there is a lot of him in this, and it, I think it can feel like the same beat over and over again. But to my mind, I always felt like, okay, is he going to stay ahead of the ball in this moment, or is he going to fall behind it? Because you, I never knew which way it was going to go with him. And I loved how he he emerged in this season, like from the cocoon. Like when he goes to his wife, she thinks he's bought this new apartment for her, and he's like, well, uh, it's not for you. I've got this other woman. I'm leaving you. I've, I've rented you an apartment. You have to be out of this house in like three days, and fuck you and like she storms out like the fact that he he's not he's not gonna dance around like he's gonna come out and say that i don't know i felt like i really liked seeing his character evolve i hated watching him but that hate in watching him led to the satisfaction of his downfall and i also liked that between the vacuum cleaner guy calling and accidentally letting his wife know he's like oh i hope i didn't ruin the surprise or when she goes to the bank and the bank teller accidentally letting her to the wrong box like it's these people that he has no control over he has this grand plan like he's like i'm going to you know leave my wife i'm gonna get this beautiful young whore we're gonna go to this apartment you know this is gonna be my life i'm gonna be in the vanderbilt club and he does that but 
every step along the way, everything he doesn't have control over keeps biting him in the ass, and he's able to sort of overcome some of it, and then it reaches a point where, like, he's got no allies anymore. Everybody's basically against him, whether he knows it or not, and it's satisfying to see his downfall. I just hated seeing his ascension. Whether or not thinking there was going to be a downfall, I just hated seeing him get better because... Because you didn't think he deserved I kinda, it? I just, I just hated him. He's one of the main villains of the entire show, I feel. And, like, it, I have a show filled with a lot of despicable people, but you look at how Cleary turns around, you know? Like, I, originally, I feel like in season one, he was sort of marked to be a villain. But Barrow is, like, the kind of guy you're supposed to hate. Like, I love to hate this guy. Like, I'm not saying I don't like his stuff. I just feel like it's a little unbalanced this season. But when he's around, yeah, like, it's really interesting to see how weaselly he is. And it's almost like he's one of those guys where it's like, if you just visualize it and believe it, then it'll kind of be actualized. So, like, he just believes his own bullshit that he is a powerful guy. He throws his weight around and this season people are like believing him he's like somehow getting respect because he's in charge of building the hospital and his wife is throwing this huge gala right before he ditches her even when he shows up with his whore wife people are like oh okay whatever they don't even care about that you know and like he still gets into the club and everything I found it to be fun and interesting to see the villain climb the chain and then ultimately all for naught I almost got like an air of like dangerous liaisons where it's like we're having all this fun but the revolution's right around the corner it's Mm -hmm. like well he's having all this fun but like not only is he gonna die but like in a few years the stock market's gonna crash so all these rich people are gonna be jumping out of windows and stuff too like the party doesn't last forever I think what's interesting most interesting about him as a villain is that he never ever really goes up against Thackeray like he's sort of villainous to the world but to our quote-unquote hero or anti-hero or whatever he never really opposes Thackeray, at least this season. And, like, at the end, when, you know, the hospital's falling apart, when he's, like, there's talk about they might not even do it or whatever, and he goes to Thackeray, he's like, but you have a whole reputation. Thackeray's basically like, yeah, I don't care, like, whatever. And, like, he tries to, like, become his villain or sort of, like, introduce this, like, struggle or battle between the two of them, and Thackeray's like, yeah, I don't care, like, that's fine, like, whatever. Like, I'm about to die. I don't know I'm about to die, but I'm about to die. And it's interesting that, like, the big bad of the show really doesn't at all interact or oppose our anti-hero at all. I, I I I cannot more strongly disagree with the characterization of Barrow as the villain of the show. I Barrow to me he looks like a stereotypical villain just by his physical appearance and I I don't get any remorse from this guy, you know, and that is a major part of why I think that he is one of the villains. Before Tobin does his defense, like, I agree with you, Mike, like, I don't know if villain is the right word, but he's the guy we're rooting against. I mean, I guess Zinberg is kind of annoying and, like, doesn't treat Birdie well, but, like, Birdie kind of deserves it. Like, but there's nobody else, really, that is, like, evil, I don't think, oh, in this world. Co- so, like, you ha- Everyone's, all the men surrounding Cornelia. Well, yes, but also, I don't care about that story, so maybe that's why I'm not thinking about them. Like, her husband's father... Her own husband, who you never can quite get a read on. Her brother, who by the end of the show you realize is the, I think, the ultimate villain of the show. And then to to call him less, to call Barrow less of a villain than Cleary, I think misunderstands the show. I didn't say he's more or less or any of that. I just said he's one of. I just saw him to be a stereotypical villainous type. I singled him out, mostly based just on his looks, I guess, because he has that look to him. For me, I just found that he didn't have the charisma that the other people did, that, well, they're doing bad, I can kind of 
forgive them eventually, but for him, he just didn't have that. He didn't have enough charisma for me to like him. Oh, I, I heard, I heard big bad. I, com- I completely disagree. I, I think that he is – I don't even see him as particularly villainous. I see him as a man who uh, is has learned how the system works and now, goddammit, is going to make the system work for him. I don't begrudge him – virtually anything he does in this season. I think that he is he is to 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 do so I think misunderstands the whole system that he's that he's a part of outside of the medical stuff on this show and and the idea that you know um as you say Gallinger becomes a Nazi like he sterilizes you know boys uh he you and you have Cleary who we find out at the end of the show was the one who turned Harriet in and got her arrested like it's all his fault because he wanted her not to be a nun so he could marry her like that's that's insidious and and I like to believe that he turned a corner and that this is the real him that's like been trying to make it up to her all this time but like like, this show is full of I, what I love about this show is that almost everybody on the show, maybe even everybody on the show, you get to see them be really good and really bad. And I think that that that's a thing you don't see enough of the, in 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 TV. And I, and if you saw if you if you see them, I think any one of them as too black or white, it doesn't comport with my reading of the show. I I sort of. I both wanted Barrow to succeed and to get shot down. Like in the moment as he's like up against the detective, I'm like, yeah, don't let this detective get you down. And then like the next scene would be him and his wife and I'd be like, yeah, you show him, like soak him for all he's worth. I was, maybe I was just more invested in him and in, and in these scenes than you guys were. But I feel like he is someone I was really rooting for to somehow find a way through and find a way maybe back to himself, like all these characters. And I don't think, I don't know that anyone does like find their way to, to, to sort of true peace, except maybe Harriet. And maybe Cornelia and and maybe Algernon. And beyond that, I don't know. I'm definitely not rooting for Barrow whatsoever. I'm rooting for him to come to his senses and get back with his family and try and make that work. That's not fair to him or his wife. Like they, they should not be together. That that's a relationship that should yeah, you know, he should he should not leave it like this. And he should not like be cruel to her. And and the scene where she tries to like put on some some lingerie and seduce, seduce him, him is mm-hmm. so painful. Like it just it hurts for me that what she's like the humiliation she's going through in that moment. But these are two people who who were bound together as so many of the people on the show are by so- social convention by this is what we're supposed to do not because it's what they actually wanted and i just i feel i feel the chains on him that he's that he's breaking through i just i empathize with him i don't want to be his friend i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to be in the room with him but i do empathize with him but maybe i'm a monster <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think you're a monster but i mean i also feel like the show is presenting him as a villainous person even if he isn't playing one that is the way that is just perceived through society the things he are, he is doing generally he's not following the rules you know and i guess that's okay that makes him sort of like more of like an anti-hero he's clawing his way up through society any way that he can and everything but again he is choosing to want to be part of that particular lifestyle yeah. too so there's a consequence to that he becomes a horrible fucking person to get what he wants just last thing i think that he is he is playing by the rules it's just not the rules that he saw when he started his job it's the rules that he's come to see underneath it's the rules that the um show walters and the robertsons play at it's the rules of um paying off the 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 wharf guys to let the sick people yeah he's not following the law right but he doesn't follow that but following the law doesn't get you anywhere in this society that's what that's what this is all like the whole show is built around a guy not barrow but but um thackeray who his whole thing is breaking like the rules 
rule, the quote unquote rules. Like it's it's this this show's all about about how the only way forward is to break the rules. And it's just that the rules he chooses to break, Barrow, and the way he chooses to break them, and Thack too, for that matter, they, they get it gets them killed. Like it's going to kill them. And I don't know. I think that's a that's a kind of you know that's that's a fascinating thing. Can we talk about one woman who maybe doesn't break the rules, but I think. If this show went on a couple more years, she might be, like, president. Like, I want to talk about Elkins because Lucy is the best because I feel like she is sort of breaking similar rules, kind of. In a way, like, she's doing things you're not supposed to do. You know, she's kind of whoring herself out. And she, like, like that scene where her dad is dying and she confesses to him about, like, how she put her foot in Ping's mouth and he paid her $100 and she did it more than once. I'm like, this is this weird empowerment that's, like, kind of amazing and i don't know you know now that we have the contenders the wonderful show the contenders on <laughs> this network and now that i have Iceland's voice in the back of my head whenever <laughs> i'm talking about women in movies i'm like i'm not sure if i'm talking about this right or not but i feel like in this world dominated by men yeah she's kind of giving up her body and everything but like at the same time she's owning it and she's doing exactly what she wants she's able to pay for that dress with her own money and she's on this rocket ship from being like this nurse to being ostensibly like if she keeps this up like one of the most powerful people in new york like she is killing it in like the weirdest of ways yeah she does feel like the future of there's a sense in the, in her last scene as Cornelia's almost been killed by her brother and is walking down the stairs and she passes Nurse Elkins and Lucy on the stairs going up to be with her brother. Like these two duplicitous people, Cornelia's brother and Lucy, are the future. Like she has found a way in the exact same way as Barrow and Thackeray and these people who are sort of like fighting against whatever the rules are. Algie's the same way. Like his rules have, have more to do with race, right? They're fighting against these, these social constraints around them towards some kind of future and she finds i don't know that she is ultimately going to be any better off than thack or barrow is probably i get the sense she can kind of handle herself in a different way but i don't know who knows what happens you know 10 years into that relationship uh, but it, it is cool to see her sort of waffle a little bit at the beginning of the season and then decide no you know what fuck birdie fuck all this other stuff i'm going to become this other version of a person and to sort of actualize herself that that was cool to see because I feel like in a lot of ways it kind of mirrors what Cornelia is doing, except Cornelia is doing it for good mm -hmm. and Elkins is doing Lucy's doing it for self-improvement. And that I think one of the most devastating lines I think of the whole show or maybe anything we've covered here is when she lays out her brother's plan to her brother verbatim. And she's like, aren't you going to say something? He says, shame you aren't a man. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you'd be running this town. And like, he's basically saying, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. But nobody cares because you're a woman. Like, they're both on this journey to self-improvement and, like, trying to do right by themselves. While Lucy is like, I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to be in the coolest dresses. I'm going to go to all the cool parties. I'm going to make my man go get me drinks. Like, I am in charge of this. And then Cornelia is like, I'm going to try to do right by the world and what does that do but it gets her run out of town it's these two very strong women doing their thing mm -hmm. one who sort of does things the wrong way kind of arguably or at least by society standards is exactly where she wants to be and the other one who does things the right way has to reinvent herself completely and it's it's maybe a happy ending but it's also really sad it's sort of the instance of, I guess, Tobin sort of brought up where, you know, if you try and do things the right way and follow the law, like, it's not going to get you anywhere. Right. And we see that with Cornelia. And then when you see Lucy, it's like, well, she's going to do 
everything the society or law says she shouldn't be doing and she's going to do it and she you know she gets away with it because there's really you know she can there's no she realizes there's no danger right, in right, it right. like she is just doing what is natural basically and so once she sort of embraces that it empowers her and she definitely is like in charge of her own destiny and poor Cornelia is just sort of gaslit like to a degree right like she's just kept in the dark about so much like she has her brother turns her against her father I feel like if there was just one less thing for her to deal with she would have figured it out but there was just she had to go to San Francisco and she has like the lecherous stepfather going on and like her husband is no prize either and so like she's even got more to handle than Lucy does and Lucy's got all this time to sort of plot and plan her rise through society too but it's there's definitely a very interesting contrast going on through this entire season What's cool is that they both start the show in very different places. Like it feels to us like Lucy's very naive and Cornelia's not. Like she's very of the world, like in the beginning of season one. And then by the end of the show, Lucy has become so much less naive than Cornelia. And all this conversation is getting me thinking about the ways in which part of the show is asking its characters to figure out what rules they're going to follow. And as you say, the ones who were following the stated social rules, the law and morality as it's sort of preached in the church, the people who are following the rules that way just get completely screwed. There was a neat thing in the, I don't know if you guys watched the sort of talkbacks after the episodes, but there's one after the finale, after the show's finale, the actress who plays Cornelia, Juliet Rylance, she talked about how in her mind at the time, the reason that she in her mind, the reason she was going to Australia is because at the time, that's the only place where women could become doctors. And that in her mind, where her character ends up is go, she goes to Australia and becomes a doctor. Now, I don't know, obviously, if that's true or not. It's, like, it's what I like to imagine, the idea that she's going to find a place where the rules, where the public rules allow her to do the kind of thing she wants to do. Because the public rules here do not do it. Like... Because she's a woman at this time, at this status, with this background, she does not have the tools that Lucy does. And she's not going to be able to, well, I suppose she could get them, but she's the sort of person who I don't think, I don't know that she could. And so she's got to find a place where the rules allow her to sort of fulfill herself. And I, I just hope she, <laughs> I hope she does. It's interesting. That's almost like a reverse algae situation where he had to, you know, he couldn't really study in America to be a doctor. And then when he came here, he's all the uh, persecution and everything that he's been... And he's someone we haven't really talked about at all, but, I mean, maybe the shocker of the season is when there's a knock at the door and his wife shows up? I mean, what? We talked last season about how Soderbergh didn't really pull a lot of those sort of like shocker endings, you know, and kind of saved them for when they counted. And I feel like he did the same thing this season too. I don't feel like there were a lot of those sort of like getcha endings, but this is one of them and it really worked, I felt. And and episode four was one of my favorite episodes, which is where they sort of go up to Harlem and it's sort of shot like that part in the limey where there's the same conversation shot two different ways and cut together and all that was, was just really interesting. I didn't love episode four. Um, really? That was the one where the subway, the subway explosion, right? Wonderful surprises. No, that's the one where like the guy's mustache catches on fire in the operation and he dies. Like that one doctor, Zachary's doing like addiction study. That's not four. Yeah. She shows up at the end of episode three and then episode four, they kind of go out and they go to Harlem and Zachary is hanging out with Abby, who he's with for most of the season. Bertie learns how to be with a woman intimately that episode, finds out that his mother has cancer or at least has like the mass or the tumor. 
Oh, no, no, you're right, you're right, because it says this terrible doctor getting burnt alive as he's flirting with a new nurse. Yes, that was episode four. I didn't like that one because it felt like, like, that doctor was terrible. I hate it. I, I guess he was, was he supposed to be like a buffoon, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's the old school. Like, he's he's the doctors of the time. The doctors who all trained before Thack. That's what they're tr- they're going for there, yeah, yeah. Because it felt to me like that whole episode or a lot of that episode was about like, hey, doctors and nurses are going to pair off. And like we see that throughout the season. They keep hiring cuter, cuter nurses. And what I liked about this episode is that Emily Kinney from The Walking Dead, Beth from The Walking Dead, shows up as a nurse and she's in a couple episodes. And I love her. And I was like, cool to see her. She's the one who does that striptease, the striptease in the video. She's got such a small role. The only moment that I remember, aside from the striptease, is that like they're like, we need a video camera. And she's like, I think I know a guy who has a video camera. I don't know why I would know that. But I liked seeing her. I didn't love the rest of that episode. There was something else I just saw in my notes that I wanted to say that it was sort of unrelated. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about. It was unrelated entirely to what we were talking about. But I like that John Hodgman came back, that John Hodgman also kind of got his comeuppance. But in that same world, I don't know if either of you caught him, I don't know if either, either of you know who he is or recognize him, the dentist, I guess, or the tooth salesman or whatever role he's playing in the, in the first episode is Todd Barry who's a comedian, and he's great. And so he was the guy who they were trying to find teeth to put in Everett's wife, who John Hodge would pull all of her teeth out. That Todd Barry, he had hair and a mustache, like he doesn't normally have those, but like it was very clearly him. And I was like, oh, tapping back into that comedian well. So I like that. We need to sing Algie's, pra- Andre Holland's praises a little bit here. Where are his awards? Like he, he is consistently even if there are moments with other characters where i'm a little less engaged although i'm not not to the degree i think you guys were but every time he was on he's on screen he has me hooked i'm sort of entranced by him and i love what they do with him in the way that in this show you know his wife will show up and and what would in other series be this ongoing arc this battle of will they won't they like there's a little bit of that at the beginning and then it's like just this is life like we got to get on with it. like you know like we've cut ahead in time a little bit and like they're living together they're husband and wife and i thought it was really cool there's a scene the first scene where she's having dinner with is cornelia's family right and she is from england and she presses them on why Algie's parents aren't sitting there with them like for this the celebratory dinner why they're serving them and she makes the room very uncomfortable. And I felt uncomfortable in that moment because I've spent this whole show being aligned with Cornelia and with Algie and like they're all uncomfortable. And then, then I realized that, whoa, she is speaking real truth here. Like the show has made me accustomed to the way things operate, right? Like the show over, you know, 14 episodes has brought me to a place where I kind of accept that this is the role that everybody has. And then she comes in and like, pokes at that and I go oh don't do that don't do that and then I realize that no that's right she's right she's totally right even though she is obnoxious right like she's speaking the truth in that moment and a truth that I had sort of unknowingly if you'd ask me consciously is this right the parents aren't there I would say no of course that's wrong that's terrible but in the moment as she's I don't know it implicated me in their um, racism and I thought that, that was a really smart thing for the show to do well I think what's really smart about season two is that there's still racism permeated throughout it's not as primary a focus as it was in season one and i think a lot of that like i think we're sort of like you were saying accepting of it because 
by season two, for the most part, Algy's kind of accepted at the hospital. People might not love him, but he's not questioned every time he goes into the operating room, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's just there. He, everybody knows he's a great doctor. But we get those moments where she's poking at the dinner table, or we get the, the blackface, the Wallace. Yes. Oh, that was, yes. Yes. I was yeah. like, oh my god. Or then at the very end, in the final episode, I think, where Algy's talking to his dad, and his dad's like, you wouldn't, like, if I didn't keep my head down, like, we wouldn't be, like, and you think about, like, this is 1909 or whatever, and that guy, like, born before the Civil War, you know what I mean? Like, he's, like, in this world, and, like, you think about it, and it's not this primary focus, I don't think, of racism in season two. You know, in season one, it was very prevalent, but here, it's like, hey, this is always under the surface, you might not be remembering it, but, like, we're gonna bubble it up every once in a while, and see, like, Algy, you know, watching the blackface like the minstrels and then like saying you know talking like you know entertaining like one of us like like it's just the way that like he's sort of become a part of this white society but at the same time is not that at all and like the way that they see they show him and his wife watching them it's like this weird really uncomfortable dichotomy of like how do we all feel i mean it's obviously wrong but like how are they handling this situation well, and they had said on the way into that show to, to the entertainment that night, they were telling another couple, oh, we have we saw them already. Like they had already been to that show and they loved it. So it is it is a very interesting, thorny look at how the insidiousness of and as, as you say, sort of the social acceptance of uh, at this time of this kind of racism. Yeah, I was definitely less aware of it again going in this time, I feel, because I was just more settled into the way season one was playing and this just plays differently from time to time like i did get cut off guard at that dinner scene and then again at barrow's ball the wife's ball when the minstrels came out i was like this is crazy that algae and his wife are into this performance it kept having me look at myself and that is uncomfortable and and to have the show do that i think is very strong that's a very smart show we also have to talk about Birdie because in addition to the Harriet and Cleary stuff, Birdie might be my favorite. I, I may have felt, yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to say because I love all these. <laughs> I love so much of this show. We've talked in the past. I've talked a lot about in the past about Soderbergh shooting intimacy and his interest in, in, in intimacy. There's this great moment after he, so so Birdie is sort of, as I read the show, had not had sex before he's he goes to this brothel and loses his virginity in, in this lovely little kind of scene. And then you get the first love scene with his girlfriend, with the journalist, and it's full of laughter, and he's done it before a little bit, but she hasn't, and it's extended, and it's able to be, I find it very sexy, but not because you're watching a lot of flesh flying around. Like, it's not, it's not a kind of easy sexy of, you know, you just turn on the camera and show a bunch of naked bodies. This is like there's an earned intimacy that where we care about these characters, we care about them caring about each other, and they're kind of fumbling. And but you get the sense that they have a real intimate connection. And I just think those. I thought that scene was handled so beautifully. And again, not a thing that you see on a lot of shows. And we have to say that he shows up to the room in a towel and a top hat. <laughs> yes. And then she's like, "Why are you wearing that?" He's like, "I didn't want to be too forward." She's like, "No, I want you to be forward." And then he drops the towel and puts the top hat over his junk. Yeah. And yeah. then they do their thing. And then in master filmmaking they smash cut to the from this loving moment and smash cut the operative word to a whorehouse where somebody is just like railing on a prostitute right, right. and it's like this the same thing like things are going on all over the city and i feel like we got a lot more sex in season two not necessarily more nudity but like everybody's sort of doing it in certain ways and we're seeing how in the same like they're all professionally about the same point but they're all so different 
behind closed doors. Like, Birdie is this inexperienced, like, almost virgin, and then, like, Nurse Elkins is, like, showing her new guy, like, how she's broken by Thackeray. Like, I can only have sex if I douse your junk in cocaine and then, like, whatever, or, like... Liquid cocaine, yeah. Handjobs in the office during the day. Yep. Which is, again, ultimate power move. Get it, Nurse Elkins. Like, just using it to get invited to that party, like, that's cool. I like that. And then Thackeray not even doing it, and he's in the back alley with that girl, you know? <laughs> like, in the garbage. And I really do think it might sort of be, like, sex as a metaphor for where they are in life, right? Because, like, Thackeray's doing it in an alley. We have Barrow doing it with his former prostitute. We have Ever doing it with his wife's sister, this sort of weird, twisted, underhanded thing. We have Nurse Elkins into some real kinky shit. And, like, Birdie, we have this, like, this pure, gentle, good, loving... And it sort of feels like however they're having sex is, like, how they're doing in life. Yeah, it's a great point, because you have Thack also when he... What's the name of the woman who he cured of her syphilis and she has the... Is that Abigail? Is that her name? It is Abby, yes. Abby, right. And she was she's the one from season one that he fixed her nose, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because of her syphilis. There's a moment, as a stretch in this season, where one feels hopeful that he is going to balance his life out. It has to do with his intimacy with her. And I, I think you're, yeah, you're onto something there. I hadn't thought about that, about the show sort of refracting all of their various, the trajectory of their characters through their sex lives. But the movie's doing that, or the show's doing that for a lot more characters than just, you know, than just Thackeray this season, which is, which is good, I think think. Yeah, and I didn't think about it until just now either, but it just, as we're talking about it, it's like, oh, right, like, we can see what their mental state is by who they're having sex with and how they're having sex and where they're having sex. Lucy's using it for personal gain or just to, like, get her rocks off in the only way she can, and Thackeray's just getting it any way he can, just sort of like he's a, he's an addict to everything. And then Bertie's just, you know, gentle and pure. And then you have Harry and Cleary who are making condoms. Yes, yes. Love it. That whole thing, too. I love how she goes, you know, from being the abortionist to being the safe sex advocate. You know, along the same lines, just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Planned Parenthood is where she's, uh, is what we're seeing the start of here, you know, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, too. But it all connects. While you mentioned Cleary, I want to talk about, can we talk about Chekhov's baseball bat finally gets used? And they, they also <laughs> yeah. comment on it. Like, we saw him last year and this year, always with a baseball bat. He just wants to hit somebody so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally we get to that shady... Carney guy? Frederick Weller. Yeah, yeah. Circus owner, Carney guy, yeah, who demands that he gets his conjoined twins back who have already been separated, that there's these 12-year-old Swedish girls or whatever there's going to make a killing on. And it's this, like, unspoken ballet that Thackeray and Cleary play out. He's, like, sneaking up, and he's like, oh, yeah, he's just right over there. And then the way that he turns around and just gets popped in the face, I was like, oh, yeah, like, that's brutal, but that's, like, so cool. And he's like, hey, I finally got to use it. Like, we're like, yeah, like, you finally got to actually use this menacing weapon you've been carrying around for, like, <laughs> yeah. 18 hours. Yeah, and it's neat to see them, because the show is, this season is more diffuse, that not everybody is at the hospital or at the hospital all the time, that when the characters sort of circle back to one another again, and you see how well they do work together, it reminds me of that episode in season one, it was the race riot one, right? Or the, where the, the African Americans were all getting beat up and killed and you see them all sort of everybody in one spot sort of working together like those moments where you get to see how well they work together the same thing happens often in the operating room but that was a great one where the choreography of that told us a lot about who these people were and you just got the sense of them sort of rubbing up it, into each other's lives for this moment and then headed another direction and i just found that i found that very satisfying yeah and also the ambulance upgrade to an actual car <laughs> i thought it was yeah. kind of funny too yeah. 
An electric car, yeah. Uh, there's a couple things. I'm just going through my notes right now. There's a couple things I want to point out that are really icky. I'm sure Tobin had a hard time when they're almost operating on Algy's eye. Oh, God! I was going back to Grey's Anatomy, where a relapsing or a detoxing or like a in-need-of-cocaine Thackeray is like his hands quivering as... You know, Algy's eye is paralyzed. He's trying to do work on it. I'm like, oh, God. And then there's the episode a couple episodes later where he's just, like, poking the guy's brain. And I was like, oh, ooh. Oh, God. Oh. That, oh, right. I loved that shit, though. That's the stuff that, like, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. And that, to me, felt like sort of going way back to Kafka where he enters a room and there's people, like, poking at people's <laughs> brains and stuff and they're trying to, like, program it and everything. I was like, oh, this is the shit I love when, like, they open up the skull or whatever. I mean, this guy was missing this skull, which was even freakier. But, yeah, that was some of the best shit for me because it was just, like, so surreal and weird and just fringe and shit. So I love that scene. I have a quote here. This is a birdie Thackeray exchange and this is after so he so Bertie leaves and he goes to Dr. Zinberg's hospital and he's not allowed to perform surgery I mean he does meet his girlfriend there so that's that's a win for him but he's not allowed to perform surgery everything is so slow it's like this incremental progress that Dr. Zinberg does everything by the book as opposed to Thackeray was just like hey I'm gonna operate on myself hey we're gonna like we're gonna cure syphilis with malaria because why not and he comes back and Bertie says I need the speed of this place of you and Thackeray says maybe I've changed perhaps I'm not as reckless and fast as you remember and Bertie says, Algernon told me last month you performed surgery with a telephone. <laughs> and then Thackeray's like, well, some things have changed. Like, you know, there, there are other things that have changed since you left. But I was just like, we don't see that, but we don't doubt it. Like, I don't know how he used a oh, telephone we saw in surgery, but like... No, we saw oh, we did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was listening for the shrapnel inside the guys who'd been brought in from the subway collapse. Oh. He tore the telephone apart. Remember the woman listened to the telephone and he would like, you know, when it would complete the circuit, it would ring in her ear. Remember that? No, I don't remember that at all. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, we saw it. We we saw it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Well, there's a lot of stuff that kind of flies by, you know. That's one of the things I love about it, though, is that they just throw away lines and stuff. Like, one thing that really amused me was when, I guess, they were talking about, was it Cornelia's husband had to go, like, somewhere because the oil, something was yeah. going on with his oil yeah. company, and it turns out they discovered gasoline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, like, it is just, like, whatever, gasoline. And that was it. Like, we don't explore any of that at all whatsoever. But, yeah, it's just great how they just pepper things throughout. Not only do they pepper things throughout, but I guess, like, the telephone thing that I completely missed, apparently, there's the woman that Thackeray performs surgery on while he's in detox or rehab or whatever, where he straightens her nose with a what he thinks is a gold earring, and she shows up to him, and... She's like, don't you remember me? He's like, sorry, I don't. And she says, remember, I paid you in heroin. And, like, Algie's in the room. He basically just like, well, I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I can't, I can't do this. But, like, it's this little thing. That, like, I don't even remember them, like, setting up. I think we just see in that facility, like, Thackeray's, like, just doing work on people's noses because they know who he is. And, like, we, they don't really spend a lot of time on it. Right. But then one of these people comes back and it becomes a sort of slightly bigger thing. And it's this way of... You know, these scenes that would otherwise maybe be thrown off or thrown out or, like, just showing the passage of time for Thackeray come back in a way that work for the story but is also funny on a couple different levels. Like, Thackeray's just not remembering at all, and then Algie being like, oh, man, I can't. Like, I'm not again with you. Like, I just can't. And they're going to fix it with with film. Yeah, celluloid. Yeah. With celluloid, yeah, with movie film. So, like, everything, it's cool how everything's tied together. Like, we get the first... Uh, 
apparently, I mean, the first filmed procedure, surgery procedure thing. And I was like, oh my God, like, it's incredible how modern, I guess, but things really haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is the technology, but the idea has always been there, like, a hundred years ago, like, doing the same thing, basically the same way, like, record, like, now you could just watch it on TV. That's just crazy to me. And that's just another thing that's just so nonchalant. It's just like, oh yeah, the movie camera exists now. But then, like, all these different applications. Like, that's what I love also about Thackeray, the character, and why I just feel like he's so well-written and the show is so smart because he's able, as the character, to make all these connections that other people wouldn't. Like, now I'm advancing plastic surgery. Yeah, there is so much technical advancement in the show that is just, as you say, alluded to and not, you know, dropped lines here or there that let you know how fast the world was moving at this point. I think we think, or I think anyway, about... Things move so much slower, you know, 100 years ago, and that we've become so used to rapid technological change just since the internet. But it's not true. Like, at this time, things were evolving so quickly. You know, one of the opening bits in season one, episodes one, two, three, as they're, like, converting the hospital to electric power, to like, to lights. And then by the end, every place you go has lights. The ballrooms, the brothels, the... Maybe not all the brothels, but some of them anyway. The nice ones. Electricity has come to New York in the space of however many years the show is taking place over, just a few. And I think that that's sort of, I, I found that sort of jarring, but also jarring because it felt so modern, felt so contemporary. On the other side of that coin, I mean, it's, it's more in season one than it is here, but we have what seems to be Dr. Zinberg like making all these like radical inventions, but then we see how he works and like it's he's not doing that like he just is very methodical about it and like i guess there's sort of two schools of thought that like there's the way that he does it Mm -hmm. and he's slowly but surely getting to the race and that sort of trickles over to birdie who finds adrenaline or potassium chloride or whatever to revitalize dead rabbits but then we have thackeray like hey like what if we jack up people's temperatures by eight degrees and like that'll maybe you know get rid of syphilis like there's two very different ways that we see the progress going but like everybody's contributing in one way or the other, and it's cool to see the way that this all happens. Right, and that syphilis cure is a real thing, too. That's another thing that they actually would do to cure syphilis, would be to give people malaria. Yeah, and I also feel like that just connects to an overall theme of the season, where it's, or maybe even just the series in general, where it's like, if you're if you're going to play by the rules, it's going to take forever, you know, and like you're only going to make incremental advancements, you know, you're going to be stuck in this hospital that first we test on mice, then we test on the next big, then guinea pigs, then pigs, and maybe next year a person, maybe, but then you could go to the Nick and, you know, there are no rules and it's like we're splitting Siamese twins, we're curing syphilis, we're doing those jobs, like we're, you know, we're doing the whole thing with the hernia over here, we have algae here, like we're bending rules, we're breaking rules, we're writing our own rules, and I think that's, that is, you know, part of the show, where it's like, you could either do what society tells you and take the long way, or you could go your own way and take the shortcut and hopefully survive, Um, but that is the way to achieve and that's the way you're going to make these quantum leaps in medicine and advancements and not just that but also like people are going to work their way into society that wouldn't normally be there and change ideas in people's minds and people are going to start thinking differently because different types of thinking people are now part of that social status and then you see characters in the people who are recruiting Gallinger with the eugenics business who are using the arguments of medical and technological and scientific advancement to 
hold back progress, right? Like to push back against a more inclusive, diverse, multi-voiced society, the backlash to all of this progress, which is again, a historical thing that you see over and over again of progress and backlash, progress and backlash. And I think that that's, the show plays that, I don't think the show overplays that. I think they, it plays that kind of just right. And it finds its perfect, you know, supervillain in, <laughs> in Gallinger, who starts out this season doing the best thing for Thack, getting him out of the sanitarium and on this boat and, and drying him out. You know, he does this sort of heroic thing and then ends up being sort of the, the turn to the villain in the end. I, I appreciated what they did with his character here. And I think that chronologically it comes much earlier, but I think that same idea is seen when we get that flashback of Thackeray down in Nicaragua. Oh, Nicaragua. Yeah, I totally forgot why he owed him one. Well, I mean, that's also kind of, I guess, not a shout out to Che, but like it, it sort of looked kind of like Che more than the rest of this. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of the progress and the holding back of progress, like the people that call him down there lie about the disease. He's like, I could have cured this if you had just been honest with me. And they're like, well, if we told you the truth, like we wouldn't be able to sell crops. And like in all these different ways, like people have these different sort of selfish goals or like ways that they think they're helping or whatever. And the show is always about like, look how much better things could have been if people were just like honest and upfront and like, you know, open about everything. But it's all that kind of thing. Like it's the whole Thackeray's just trying to do right by the world. He's like, he's breaking every rule, but like he genuinely wants to help the world. Like he wants to get to a point where nobody dies from taking either before they get surgery. He doesn't want anybody to go through the pain that he did when Abby died. He's doing things maybe the wrong way, but he's still doing things in a way that is for the greater good. And then you have Gallinger doing what he's doing, and you have this guy down in Nicaragua, you know, the subterfuge of that. And it's just like, I don't want everybody like Thackeray, but if you have like a mixture of like Thackeray's and Birdie's all around the world, like things would be a lot better. It's tough because like it depends partially on like position. You know, Thackeray, yeah, like if he screws up, a patient will die, but what about the guy who's letting sick passengers go, you know, without getting turned back and he's causing, he's causing a plague? You know what I'm saying? So, like, is the risk worth the consequence at times? And, like, it depends kind of on what level you're playing the game at, you know? And, like, it gets more and more dire. Like, I feel like Thackeray, like, I'm glad he's breaking rules. Like, I'm glad he's kind of doing what he's doing, you know, even though, like, he's losing patience here and there. But then again, you know, with Cornelia's brother, he's playing the same game, but like what he's doing is causing the freaking plague. Different levels, but the same thing. And for different reasons, right? Like Cornelia's brother is doing it for money and power. He said he says as much. And Thack's doing it, yeah, sure for glory, but also for to save lives and for the advancement of of understanding and science. I think the movie or the show, excuse me, is again this is Soderbergh's critique of the economic system we have set up for ourselves, where those who are who are doing this at a high level for money and power achieve, and those who are doing it for more selfless reasons burn brightly and do great work and. Then and die. <laughs> so I don't think that's probably an accident. But what a spectacular death. Oh, it's what a scene. I, I was I was so emotional in that scene, even as I knew kind of what was happening, you know, like and you you know it's coming when they when they when you realize what he's gonna try and do. But I yeah, I, I found myself tearing up as his end is coming and I didn't want him to go. Well his final words are just so perfect. He just has this epiphany at the end and yeah, yeah, it's like, this is all we are. And he's literally, what he is, is sprawled out in front of him. <laughs> like, it's great. 
Yeah. And those lines were lines that he wanted to say somewhere in the final scene. And the writers were like, oh, that sounds like the last words he would say. And so they wrote that in as, as his last words. That was Clive Owen's idea. And it almost feels like it should be the last words of the show, but it's not. I mean, there's not that many words after that, but we get the button. Like, I think the last thing that we hear is Algy talking to the patient, right? Like, I think that's the last thing. He says, tell me about it. Tell me, like, he's the guy yeah. who said, I've had bad, I'm having bad dreams. And he said, tell me about them after a long pause. And then it cuts to black. It's just so fucking good, you guys. It's so fucking good. That's something that's, like, every time the screen fades to black and says directed by Steven Soderbergh, like, I, I'm like, I'm happy and angry because it's always at exactly the right point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I want more, but I also get why it's here. I also feel like, and this is something that I noticed just because, as usual, I waited a little bit too long to start this, and so I sort of crammed through. And I think that's also maybe why I liked the back half more because I did it, like, in sort of two big chunks as opposed to just one or two a day or whatever. But, like, I was looking at the, the episodes of the season and I was like, how much time do I actually need? And I feel like, on average, these were all almost a solid hour. The first season were sort of more like in the 48 to 52, sometimes at the 55. But here, it's like, there's just more of it, which is, when it's going great, like, exactly what I want. Yeah, it feels more consistently at 52 or 57. Again, I'm clearly, I'm in the tank for the show. But they didn't feel lagging to me. Like, it felt like he was... As you say, you get to the end, you're like, yeah, this feels like the end, but I want more. <laughs> and until that last episode, there was more to watch, and then it was all gone. I think part of that for me is that's a positive aspect. Like, I just feel like more was going on this entire season. I mean, first season, we really have to establish characters and, you know, have a central focus mostly on Thackeray and stuff. But like this season, we were really able to sort of like open up the world. I really feel like that carnival place they go to is like some kind of nexus of the Nick universe. All characters have been there, but not all at the same time, but it connects them all together. Just that it tried to be a little more sprawling and, and open up and get into the minutiae more of other characters. I think stuff like that kept it going, paced it a little quicker for me, actually. And so that is a, as a positive aspect of what I just considered maybe there being too much covered here, but maybe not. Now, I want to ask a question. We know that Tobin is in the bag for the show, but Tobin, if you had to rank this, I mean, this is not on Letterboxd. We can't rank it on Letterboxd. As of right now, Out of Sight is your number one, right? Yep. What's your top three? Is it Out of Sight and then The Limey? Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, and The Limey are my top three. I'm looking at it right now. Where would this fall? I had this open because I was going to ask you guys the same question. And as I sit here right now, one minute I'm like, it's number two, and the next minute it's number one. I love love this show. This does all the stuff that I love Soderbergh doing all in one show. And I feel like there's a consistency of voice because he's like literally behind the camera for the whole thing. Maybe at number three, I maybe I would say number three, Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, and The Nick. But it could very easily day to day slide up and down that scale. But I can't imagine it getting much lower than number three. What about you guys? Well, I think it's fair to put it behind two things that we've called. I think we've called perfect movies. I think Out of Sight is a perfect movie. Yeah, but this, but I, but I, I'm. This may be a perfect show for me. It's definitely not for me. I, I really like it. Like that was when we finished season one. I was like, you know, this might be like I have a list. I don't know how confident I am in my list because TV shows are so much harder, I think, to rank than movies because it's like, how do you compare 20 hours of this to like 110 for Lost or something? You know what I mean? Like it's it's a very different scale. But like when we finished season one, I was like, oh, this might be in my top 25. Like I might, you know, I, I love this. I love where this went. And then like front half, as I've been saying, the front half of season two, I was like, oh, like that's sort of disappointing. And then like by the end, I was like, oh, so this might be sort of on the cusp. I don't think it's a perfect show for me. Maybe knowing where everything goes, watching it again, because I do 
think it's very rewatchable. I would like it more. I would put this... So I have Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, then Haywire. I might put this four or five, mm-hmm. right after Haywire and right around Aaron Brockovich. Above The Informant, for sure. But above everything else that he's done. Middle of your top ten, basically. Middle of my top ten. I think some of the best hours are as good as anything he's ever made. I think that there's other things, like threads and storylines and scenes and episodes, where I'm just like, eh. Like it's, like, I don't think any of this is bad. I think it's just not what I was hoping for, or not what I was expecting, or not what I was sort of trained to watch. I don't, I don't know. But definitely top five somewhere. Mike, what about you? Yeah, this is a tough one. I haven't really been watching a lot of TV shows recently uh, to sort of put it up against. I mean, I, I love it. TV is really good, Mike. You gotta get you gotta get on it. TV is pretty good. I mean, I guess I just I I love TV. I love I just I. I like movies more, but I really like this as a show. I mean, it, it's an amazing show. Like, I don't know if that could actually be stressed enough because there's just so many great shows out there, but this is way, this is definitely top tier. I mean, and I think it being on premium cable has something to do with that too, right? Like, it's not an AMC show. It's not on USA. It's not, you know, it's not on any of that kind of stuff. Like, you have to pay for it. And I would pay for it. I'd pay for more of it, you know? I don't know exactly where I'd put it because, like, looking at what I have, like, I might have to rearrange some things on my list, but um, I, I, you know, five or six, like, it's tough because I love the limey, I love Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, and Schizopolis. Like, for me, those four movies... Like for the most, I might have to switch Haywire with Magic Mike, but I, I don't know. I probably put it somewhere in four, five, or six, floated around in that area. It's before Informant, it's before Ambrockovich, it's before Contagion and and Sex Lies, and that's the rest of my top ten. So yeah, in the middle of my top ten, it's one of those shows. Like I, I think about it a lot. Like the you know as I'm away from it, like things pop into my head and that's a mark of a great show to me like uh, you know I stopped watching Walking Dead after season one because I, I was getting nothing from it can, can I say so as we're recording this the spring season or whatever because they split everything in the halves comes back this Sunday so we're recording this at the beginning of February I saw my TiVo was going to record the new episode of Walking Dead on Sunday and I was like ugh like I'm so committed <laughs> to it by now like I haven't missed an episode I'm like that shouldn't be my reaction to like a show coming back but like that's where we are but I've also seen like 105 hours of it like I can't not watch I don't know but I get where you're going but sorry sorry go ahead this is a great show, worth your time. Definitely check it out. You know, this guy, Soderbergh, like, I don't know where the hell he finds the time. I'm convinced he has a time machine. Or there's two of him. Yeah, he's got a twin, yeah. Like, he's doing the prestige thing. <laughs> like, you know? Imagine how amazing that would be, that he's been a twin this whole time. Or a triplet, even. But Wait, 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 wait a question for that. Like, before we get off that idea, would that be amazing? Or would it be like, oh, that's how he does it? And, like, it's sort of like, now you understand how the <laughs> trick is done. You're like, oh, it's sort of less impressive. Like, would that be more impressive or to be less impressive i would be very impressed okay i'm sure the shock would wear off pretty quickly and be like all right now get back to work both of you get back to work (laughs) yeah yeah stevens the stevens soderbergh yeah so i'm very much looking forward to checking out mosaic now because uh high quality television from this guy now a far cry from where he started trying to do television way back on that noir Showtime special thing and a a few other little missteps, maybe K Street. And K Street. Yep. Hey now, hey now. (laughs) Just as a quick aside, we will be covering Mosaic. It'll come out in two weeks. Uh, Next week we have Logan Lucky, which is, spoiler alert, another one of his movies in my top ten. And then we have Mosaic the week after that, so. Is it really? I love Logan Lucky. Have you seen it yet or no? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I wouldn't. You don't like it that much. Not that much. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. I didn't rank it yet because I haven't rewatched it for the show. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, Tobin. Yeah. I have a Channing Tatum podcast, and I love Riley Keough. Of course. And I got two words for you, Joe Bang. I sort of want to keep soaking in this show. Like, to me, it doesn't feel like a show. That's why it's hard for me to rank this with other TV shows. Like, I write down my list of, like, okay, there's The Wire, there's Friday Night Lights, there's The Sopranos. Like, there are these great best of TV TV shows. I watched all of those last year. Like like Deadwood. And this... I watched that last year, too. This almost doesn't feel fair to put this... This feels like a really long movie to me. Like, this feels like one long story, which is why it feels like more like sort of putting it up against other movies make, makes more sense somehow for me. But, like, people out there, get yourself to wherever this is and watch this show. This is a fucking amazing show. I'm pounding the table, and then I'll shut up, that you have to watch The Nick. And I think you have to watch it more than once, and I think it's a work of genius. Well, I think you can probably do a sample trial to Cinemax on Amazon, I'm guessing, and probably see it all on there, so go do that. It does sort of feel like a longer movie, and I don't know how you compare this to a show like The Sopranos that has 86 hours, The Wire that has 60 hours, or Friday Night Lights that has 60 hours. It's more like something like Twin Peaks The Return, you know what I mean? Where it's like a very crafted... But even, but like, but that's still the same thing. Like, I don't know how you compare that to a movie because you know so much more about Thackeray than you do about like Erin Brockovich or something. Well, I think just in the sense that it's auteur driven, that David Lynch directed every episode of The Return and that Soderbergh directed every episode of The Nick, you know, so it's just that it's very much their work and the way that a movie is, you know, and that they're telling, they're in control of telling the entire story through their eyes, that the way that they would tell a feature film, I feel it's just much longer. Before we wrap up, I want to go through a couple quick hit movie things of note. Number one, as we're recording, it just was announced that Steven Soderbergh is going to be directing a NBA drama starring Andre Holland, a.k.a. Algernon, from this show. So that'll be out sometime. Just to say, written by the co-writer of Moonlight. Yeah, which also Andre Holland was in right. and great in that too. So, And he was in Selma. And yeah, okay, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I wrote on Facebook and Twitter when I shared that story that, like, people make fun of Cage or, you know, talk about how Cage makes so many movies. But, like, Soderbergh, there's more Soderbergh stuff that's come out since, like, we've seen Cage. Like, <laughs> Unseen. Unseen is basically the Cloverfield paradox. Like, hey, I made this movie and it's coming out in March. Like, it's just, hey, this is a thing that I did. And I, oh, by the way, I might only shoot on iPhones now. Like, okay, that's number one. Number two, I just did an episode. This, is, again, comes out a couple months ago. We did the episode of Moneyball for PSL Love Hoffman. He was supposed to direct that. You know, I don't know if you, either of you heard that episode but he had this idea for that he was going to cast the actual baseball players in the parts and i was like even when it's not a movie he's making he can't help but be himself and i love that movie but i also would have loved a soderbergh version of it with actual david justice and actual maybe he gets billy bean i don't know who knows now i guess brad pitt was always gonna be there but like gets david justice and gets scott hattieberg and all these different people like that would have been great And the only other thing that I want to say was that for Magic Mike's, the episode that came out in February, which as we're recording this is next week, as you're listening to this was about two months ago, was the movie Havoc, starring Anne Hathaway from 2005. And it's a very bad movie. Don't see it. However, what blew my mind, and this is a a teaser for both of you. I know I don't think Tobin listens to Magic Mike's. I know that Mike does. Laura San Giacomo plays Anne Hathaway's mom. Laura San Giacomo from Sex, Lies, and Videotape in that movie, Masturbates on Camera for James Spader. In... Havoc, there is a terrible plot device where this guy is making a documentary of their crew and at one point is alone within Hathaway and films her and she masturbates on camera. And I was like, in my head, I was like, this is the same character 
from Sex Lies, that this woman grew up, had Anne Hathaway as a daughter, and like mother, like daughter, can't control themselves when they're around video cameras. Like, I've never seen that in another movie that's not some skin and axe thing or whatever, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. In actual sort of Hollywood movies with people you know, I was like, what are the odds that Laura San Giacomo is going to be in two movies where mm-hmm, women mm-hmm. masturbate in front of video cameras? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> it's a cinematic universe there of some kind. The skinematic universe. <laughs> That's all I got. Toby, any other thoughts about the Nick season two or the Nick as a show other than you just gushing about it for another hour and a half? Oh, yeah. I got thoughts and thoughts and thoughts. I could go on. I could go on for days here, but I won't. I I just, again, implore everyone to seek out the show. I will definitely watch this again, and I will watch the commentaries, and I will soak this thing up. I have so much to learn from how they did this show. I just feel like I'm I'm a surgeon, and I need to open it up and sort of dig around inside and see how it was put together. I'm not ready to say this is a, a perfect show, but I'm not ruling that out either. I think the Nick is awesome. And Mike? I love this show. I love all the actors on this show. You know, I understand it can't go on forever, and two seasons, it's still a lot. And even though I feel like it can go on, I I like knowing that this was their plan. Like, once I know that this is their plan, I'm fine. It's not like with Deadwood where it got canceled and they were never able to do anything, and there's, like, this legendary movie that may or may not be happening. I think that's great, you know, the closure, the completeness, like, not that there's closure necessarily, but just as a viewer, I feel like it's over, like it's complete, like it's a good place to sort of get out of this story. And I understand more now, you know, why they would sort of pick it up 40 years later with completely different characters. Who knows, maybe uh, Bertie's son could be one of the characters, like something along those lines or something. The Nick kids. Maybe not. But yeah, you know, it, it, this is a great show. I'm so glad that this show exists. And I'm glad that now I can track these actors again as they go on and do other work. You know, uh, Clive Owens can get back to making movies and that'll be great. And I look forward to Mosaic and I, you know, hope Soderbergh just keeps going. All of all of the Steven Soderberghs that he is just, just all keep working. You know, you did this while you were retired. Like, what the fuck? Like, that is just insane. Yeah, this was, this was his retirement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to make this amazing show. No big deal. And now he's out of retirement. It was a really good time to be a Soderbergh fan. I think that is important to note. We didn't say that, but the, this was like the end. This is, he's like, I'm done. And then I guess probably within a year was like, all right, time to make Logan Lucky. And then like put it out eight months after that or whatever. But this was the end of his quote unquote career. The, I guess the quote unquote end of his career, whatever, however you want to say it. Since then came back with Logan Lucky and Mosaic and Unseen and this basketball drama and who knows what else. But it is super exciting. Again, this is probably going to be the director with the most films that we ever cover on here. Because I also don't think that of people who have been making movies starting around 1990, like, I don't think there's been more prolific directors. So this is like a weird place to start, but it's also, I think, a great place to start, setting the bar really high (laughs) here for Cinemakers. But I'm glad that we started here. Uh, It's not over yet, by any means. We still have another two or three episodes before this initial run concludes. But, yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled to have done Soderbergh. I'm excited to have seen the show. Like, this was always a show that I wanted to watch, but I'm glad that I had a reason to watch it, that I had to, like, set aside time to watch it for this. Glad that I had people to talk about it with. And, again, like Tobin's been saying all episode, go find it, go watch it. Whether you, like, 
dramas, it's good. Whether you like gross stuff, it's good. Whether you like, <laughs> you know, hyper violence and like sex and like the other things that are typically associated with like prestige paid channel dramas and shows, like it's all there. Like whatever you want to watch a show for, if you want to watch like a funny show, like it's not consistently funny. Like it's not it's not trying to be funny. It is top hat over your junk. It is top hat <laughs> on your dick funny. So, you know. But yeah, I mean like whatever you want to find in this show you can find go check it out. It was nominated for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series. They submitted the finale, This Is All We Are. It was nominated for Outstanding Hairstyling, Makeup, and Production Design, but it did not win any of those. And then the year before, it had one production design that was nominated for a bunch of other stuff. So didn't really win too much, but... I'm surprised because it's, uh, you know, the period part of it as a period piece is, like, immaculate. Whatever effects they had to do digitally to create the streets or whatever, to the set extensions is just... Not since the John Adams miniseries have I just been, like, floored about handheld CGI, matte paintings, and all that kind of stuff. It's just beautiful. Beautiful. So both directing in a drama series and also drama series both went to Game of Thrones. Oh, man. The directing went to Battle of the Bastards, which is the Jon Snow against Ramsay Snow, Ramsay Bolton. That epic battle. So, I mean, that was visually spectacular. I know it's a different kind of show, and I'm not saying Game of Thrones is as good as this, but I can see why the Emmys would, you know, look at this battle with, like, thousands of extras and admire it over sort of a contained show. I mean, beautiful in every way, but... Yeah. What I'm saying, TLDR, TV is great. Mike, watch more TV. Yes, 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 exactly. And everybody else, go watch The Nick. For all things Cinemakers, and also all things that I've done with Joe, too, go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Like we said at the very top, this is our 30th episode of the show, so there's lots of Soderbergh talk that you can catch up on. Last week, we put out the season one episode of The Nick, so go back and check that out if you didn't. It would be weird, I think, for you to listen to this one and not listen to the first one. Maybe. I don't know. But cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter. Podcast is available to be subscribed to anywhere you find podcasts. Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, rate, review, subscribe, say nice things, email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. We will for sure get this up email after we're done recording this, but we'll figure out a way to, I guess, address it. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, go to those places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Adam. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.